Welcome to the RSP Quick Game with Mark Schofield and myself, Matt Waldman. Yes, it's brought to you by Pepperidge Farm, who remembers all you Dalton Schultz haters from two years ago. Brought to you by Yankee Candle. Yankee Candle, yeah, pumpkin spice, there we go. <laughs> we can't go into the pumpkin spice story that I had earlier, but, you nope. know, that's nope, where... Nope, nope. But it is outtakes. pumpkin spice season, friends. It is. Get excited. So, so, you know... Katie bar the door at the Starbucks. That's all yep. I'll say from that perspective. But listen, week four, we are on our way into week four, week three in the books. Had some exciting games. We're going to talk about some of that and some of the on, you know, the 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 ongoing narratives and and interesting tidbits from the NFL. And let's start off with Matt Stafford. Is yep. is he now just finally getting his due? Or is the scheme making him the, you know, making him the player that people are talking about with him? Or is it just too early to, to come to that kind of conclusion? I I honestly think that, A, he is kind of getting his due. That he's getting, you know, the attention that he deserved, languishing for a while in Detroit. I know you and I have talked about Stafford for years and how good he is. I talked about how I'd want Stafford to be the guy to replace Tom Brady. Like, I am excited that he's finally getting this attention. You know, no look throws, all that stuff that we we talked about with other quarterbacks. Stafford's been doing that for years. I also think, though, he's now unlocking portions of Sean McVay's playbook, and McVay's having fun with it. You know, you see – I know we're going to talk about some scheme stuff a little later, some four by one stuff out of empty, some shotgun stuff that McVeigh basically all came out and said, he, you know, he talked Joe Ferriola at next gen stats said this summer, look, you might see a lot more shotgun. You might see more RPOs, you know, with Stafford rather than make than with Jared Goff. Um, he, Jordan Rodriguez, who covers the Rams for the athletic and does a great job highlighted that previous to week three saying, you know, dropping in a quote from McVeigh about how they're doing more in shotgun. They're doing some stuff they didn't do before, which is nice coach speak of saying our previous quarterback was hot garbage and now we can do some fun stuff and unlock horses at the playbook and they're doing that too. So I think there is a scheme component to it. And yeah, you know, it is early, you know, defenses have film. They'll figure some stuff out, but right now Stafford's playing extremely well and McVeigh's having a ton of fun. Seth Galina pointed out they ran three, play action plays against Tampa Bay three in today's NFL. That's an absurdly low amount. They don't need to, you know, they, they, they're just letting them slant it out of these four by one looks. It's been fun to watch. Oh, without a doubt. And you know, the, it's fun what they're being able to do with a variety of things. I mean, I've always kind of joked around about McVay's love for the screen game to the point that it can be on too much, but I enjoyed watching the way he implemented the screen game this week. You saw yeah. things like, putting Tyler Higby outside and instead of him being the blocker, you actually had Cooper Cup and Robert Woods as the primary blockers and to watch them work in tandem and literally have, you know, Woods peel off to another defender and Cup being on the inside hip of 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 Woods and then the guy who finally kind of puts the dagger in is the tackle who works up field afterwards. Right. But those guys set the tone for that play. 
And to have the variety where you wouldn't expect the tight end screen to the wide tight end out there and that they're able to do that type of work and then just say, yeah, we're going to sprinkle in a little Deshaun Jackson in this week, you know, save him for a big game. And, you know, if Stafford didn't have, wasn't under major pressure, Jackson might've had over 200 yards and two touchdowns in that game. I mean, yeah. there, there was a, you know, so that was a fun element to it. And yeah, the four by one where they got Deshaun Jackson loose. I mean, that was one where basically Carlton Davis was following Jackson and, and Devin White didn't realize that was going on and tried yep. to stop Jackson and push him and, and wound up like, you picking know, off picking Davis. off his own player. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, there's a lot of fun to have with this offense and the fact that Stafford can kind of buy a little more time and wing it. The fact that he can squeeze it in the tighter windows. He has that. They know that pressure is kind of like, yeah, whatever. I mean, right. if he saw that Miami Dolphins front last year and what they did to Goff, he'd probably be like, you know, he would, he'd have an urgency about it, but he'd keep his water. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. So definitely he's getting his due. So, Gotta, you know, we we gotta ask you. I mean, I'm I'm glad that, I, though I have to compliment you before we start talking about the Patriots, which is an, a weekly thing here. I, I do admire the the inside the pylon throwback that you yeah. got going on today. The ITP with the throwback yeah, the today. ITP throwback today. So now we we got Brady coming back to New England. Who are you rooting for, Brady or the Patriots, or are you ambivalent? I mean, I'm I'm largely ambivalent. I mean, I, if push comes to shove, you know, I'd like to see Brady throw for 300 yards in a losing effort. You know, uh, this this is a weird week, and, and I'll probably write about it at some point for USA Today. But, I mean, on a, on a personal level, I can track a good 20 years of my life and so many changes with Tom Brady. I mean, his first season when he took over, they went and ended up winning the Super Bowl. That was my last year of law school. And, you know, I remember watching that playoffs, watching those games with a woman that's now my wife and, and talking with her about, wow, this is this is just this young kid coming in. And, you know, now he's coming back after having left and won another Super Bowl. I mean, there's a lot of emotions that sort of go into it as a fan. And, you know, as people like us that came to this industry as fans first, like it's sometimes hard to divorce yourself of the fandom and the analyst role. And, you know, this is going to be a week where that's sort of difficult for me um, because I'd love to see Tom Brady go in um, and just have a great game. But at the same time, I am a Patriots fan too. And, you know, so I'm trying to stay largely ambivalent about it. I'm kind of rooting for a fun story, um, but it's going to be weird Sunday night. And, and I'm going to be John Ledger and I are doing a live stream over a pewter report. We're going to do play-by-play and analysis the entire game. And I'm kind of glad to be doing that because it'll, it'll keep me sort of busy and not just sort of yeah. soaking it in. And so it's a, it's a weird week for sure. Well, I'm glad you're doing that too because that also means that you don't have any assignments going on where you're at your neighbor's house and you have to run back and forth. No, like, I'm not doing that. Type anything up and I'm miss not doing that about Sunday that night. No, okay. no. Okay. no. Okay. But I was doing that last Sunday. Well, there you go. You got your steps in, so that's good. I get my steps in. Between that and the Mount Vernon trip on Saturday, man, I got all my steps in this weekend. See, that's that's fantastic. I, you know, I mean, obviously, I, I don't really have a 
I, I don't really have, you know, any side in this fight in any way, but I, I, I'm a Brady fan. I've always been a Brady fan. Yeah. Um, and I, I, I'm rooting for him to do well. And I think yeah. that, but again, it's kind of like, it's like rooting for the sun to come up. I mean, so, right. I mean, I'm not really worried too much about that. Um, but I, you know, I did laugh because I saw something from Ross Tucker, who's a Pennsylvanian and, I don't think Pennsylvanians know Boston's, you know, the Northeast very well for him to say, if anybody boos Tom Brady, you know, in Gillette stadium, when he comes up, they should have their season tickets taken away. I'm almost like if they, anyone boos doesn't boo Tom Brady coming back to new England, then they should probably have their citizen, their, like their residency taken away from the Northeast because that's just how the Northeast is. Right. And you know what I'm interested is, you know, obviously I, I would be stunned if they don't have like some sort of pregame ceremony, like some sort of pregame thing. Um, I also want to see, look, Brady always had this thing where he came out to Jay-Z, to Jay-Z public service announcement. He would come out from the one tunnel by the lighthouse and sprint down to the other end. Um, he has the, you know, allow me to introduce myself, gives a fist pump in the corner and the crowd just goes nuts. I want to know if they do that. I want to know if they do his usual Gillette entrance, even though he's wearing a different uniform, because I think that would be the kind of thing where you do that. You let the crowd go nuts for him, sort of the, like, you know, thanking him for everything and the six titles and all that. And then the rest of the time he's in the game, he's on the field. You are screaming your heads off, and you are booing everything he does. Like, I, I think that's the way you sort of do it. If I were there, I'd be booing the guy a little bit. Yeah. Like, he's he's now wearing a Tampa Bay Buccaneers uniform. Like, like it really bothers him. I mean, and, and yeah, he probably he's probably hoping for that. Yeah. He's gonna feed off of that. I mean, he's the you don't play till forty four the way he does if you're not the ultimate competitor if you don't feed off of that so i'm, I'm sure there's going to be you know some of that and he's gonna love every second of it yeah i would i think it'd be kind of fun to be i think it'd be kind of fun to have played that many years in new england and be cheered all the time or for most of the time and then uh and then have one where they just lustily boo you yeah i mean it's just like going to the hall of fame and with Manning be, being indu- um, inducted. And, and Brady getting booed there. And yeah. I mean, I, I'm sure and when Manning is at Brady's induction and Manning gets booed, Manning's going to love it. I mean, That's, yeah. you don't become these guys if you don't sort of relish that. You know, I not like Kurt Schilling is sort of a, a good person to bring up, but when he was signed by the Red Sox, I'm going to talk about the Red Sox in a little bit. You know, and he said, I'd love nothing more than to shut 50,000 Yankee fans up. Like, they're, when you're that ultimate competitor – the ability, the power to like make 90,000 people boo you or, or go silent. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Well, now that we've addressed kind of the soft stuff, let's talk yeah. a little bit about something that's a little more in the weeds. Um, I wrote something about Trey Sermon um, on Monday, you know, and Dwayne McFarland, who does fantastic work over at PFF, had, you know, in game, his analysis was hey, D- Trey Sermon's utilization doesn't look that good. He's not getting a lot of opportunities on passing downs, um, long passing downs or short passing downs. He's not getting a lot of opportunities in the red zone. 
He's splitting work with Kyle Juszczyk and Debo Samuel. He's supposed to be the only running back in town right now with Eli Mitchell hurt. This doesn't look good for him. And my thoughts, and I want to know whether you think this take makes sense as someone who's played the game a bit, which is this, is that, you know, looking at Sermon heading into the week, he was iffy all week, wasn't cleared till Saturday. Eli Mitchell was declared out on Saturday, was partial practice at best. Both of them were partial practice. They signed Jock Patrick, who may understand outside zone with the Bengals, but doesn't know any of the terminology. Trent Cannon's a return specialist who's been there two weeks now <laughs> up to that game. They, the only one they had was Needless Carrion Johnson on the practice squad as in the back behind who knew the scheme behind Trey Sermon. So at this point, when Trey Sermon's declared active on Saturday, I, my theory is, is that Kyle Juszczyk and Debo Samuel got most of the game plan install practice reps all week in those situations where they had to rely in the red zone on passing downs. They wanted someone who wasn't a rookie, had experience, and they could get them in the game to do that. And it wasn't about whether Trey Sermon knew or didn't, isn't good or isn't good at those things. It's about, was he there for the install? And the thing was, was no, they didn't have, he couldn't be available for the reps that they would give him to get ready for the game plan. So they gave him what they could in essence, because he's their best runner that they had, but they weren't going to be able to give him a lot. And it probably limited their playbook and what they could do um, as a result of that. I, I think it's a brilliant point, and I, I think it's something that that fantasy players should keep in mind. The injury status, obviously, on the weekend is, is important. You don't want to start somebody that's ruled out. But you also want to track that during the week, you know, because a couple of weeks ago when, when Gronkowski was on the Manning cast, he talked about how he doesn't practice Friday. Friday's red zone day, right? I'm red zone raw. I don't need that. That stuff might not matter for Rob Gronkowski, but it probably matters for a potential rookie running back going into a game. And if he's not available to go, if he can't practice during, say, Red Zone Friday, you're not going to run him out there. You have to find other ways, prepare other players to handle those responsibilities. And look, all teams are different. Maybe Wednesday is Red Zone Day for San Francisco. We don't, we don't quite know that. But something tells me that these coaches do it similarly, you know. And so you might want to start keeping in mind tracking practice reports in terms of injuries. Like if, if a guy can't go until Saturday, he might get some work like we saw with Sermon, but he might not get third and long pass it down, two-minute situations. He might not get red zone situations. And so you know, I think Dwayne's point was right. Like the utilization does not look good, and it's certainly something to track. But I think your point to what can a player do during the week ultimately determines how they're used on Saturday or Sunday or Monday night is a critical one and something we should all sort of start keeping in mind because you got to run the guys out there that you have practiced this stuff with. That if Sermon's not there or if another player isn't there, if Ramondre Stevenson's not ready to go, somebody else is going to get those red zone reps in practice and be ready to take those red zone reps in the game. Yeah, and I think that 
to Dwayne's point, I mean, listen, is those utilization reports are fantastic. And over the course of a season, when yeah. you have multiple samples of information, they bear out very well. Yeah. But this is one of those exceptional contextual issues that where it the the utilization may not do as good of a job of explaining on a one game basis. Right. You know, I think so, that's extremely well said. Yeah. Yeah. So. So, yeah, I mean, it's fascinating. And and just to I'll point out one other thing. I had a couple readers ask me this on Monday and they're like, I'm going to read what you write wrote on Monday. And I know it's probably so you probably got something coming out on, on this. But what did you you know, I've heard people say, well, they didn't run outside zone with Trey Sermon. They ran once and he got stopped and didn't reach his point because he's not fast enough. And so therefore they never went back to it again. Well, my answer to that is this. Trey Sermon's fast enough to run outside zone. He ran outside zone against Big 12 and SEC and yep. Big 10 defenders who are in the NFL. He did it He he did it in practice. If it was a problem in practice, that would be another thing. Is he as fast as Raheem Mostert or Eli Mitchell? No. But if you recall the week before, Eli Mitchell ran the ball, I think, 17 times for 13 times for 47 yards or 17 times. I think it was 17 times for 47 yards against the Eagles. Not a very good day. And he got stopped on outside zone and toss plays repeatedly by the Eagles defense. I don't think it was the back. I think it's the opposing team's understanding the run scheme and being able to stop it and make them do something else because they know that it worked very well against Detroit. And that's the only thing that that Eli Mitchell really runs well are these perimeter plays. So they yeah. wanted to make him work inside. So before we, you know, and I think what happens is a danger that people have is they take something they'd observe, which is he doesn't look fast. And then they formulate analysis around that as opposed to like understanding the full the full scope of the situation. So that's that's yeah. all I want to answer with that. But no, and and his 16 yard run, I just pulled it out. Uh, it's his own play to the right. The vision that Sermon has to identify this cutback opportunity and to bend that back. You've got your three reads, right? Bang, bend, bounce. To bend that back the way he does, that's something that Kyle Shanahan is going to appreciate and going forward. Even if it looks like he's not getting opportunities on outside zone, he's not fast enough to make the sort of bounce, the ability to make that bend cutback is critical too. And Shanahan will appreciate that, and he will likely get more opportunities going forward as a result of that run. Yeah, and when people say, well, they, they're not going to use that a lot because they lean on the outside zone game. Well, they lean on the outside zone game because of the backs that they had in the past. You know, Tevin Coleman, Jarek McKinnon, who were both better outside than inside. Um, Raheem Mostert, who's just great at at the outside plays. Um, Matt Breda, who could do a little bit of both. And they ran a lot of different stuff with Matt Breda when he was healthy because he could do that type of stuff. And then you got to look back at who got most of the touches in Atlanta when he was in his prime. And that was Devonta Freeman, who was much more of an inside guy than Tevin Coleman. They... Kyle Shanahan will adjust and he demands a lot from his blocking. And that's one of the things that I love about San Francisco is that they have a diverse run game and they know how to use it. Now, someone, we go from a team that can use a lot of play diversity to a team that could use a lot more play diversity and have, you know, 
I know I'm going to be talking about him on on Wednesday night on the Keeping It 100 Network. Um, but Justin Fields, you know, he's make he, that game is making the rounds everywhere. Doug Farrar wrote a terrific piece talking about breaking down Fields' game and and the issues with the scheme. But I just want to know whatever angle you want to take, whether you want to take the same angle that needs that people feel like they need to reemphasize with this about the coaching or you want to take a different angle, whatever you want. What did you think of Justin Fields' debut? I mean, the coaching has kind of been talked about and I understand that that's the easy one. I was on uh, ESPN or whatever it is. I think it's ESPN 980, the team 980, whatever they call it down here in DC with Reese Waters on Monday. And he was telling me how he had like already written the negligent suit on behalf of Justin Fields against Matt Nagy. And he just wanted me to know, you know, he was asking my, my legal expert advice if he should file that lawsuit. And of course I told him he should. Um, the, the, the Matt Nagy, we, we've beaten that horse to death. Like we all know where everybody stands on that. I think Justin Fields, look for the situation he was in. It's not like he exactly helped himself. Like there, there, there were some moments there where he might've had a window or he might've had a moment or there were things that he could have done to sort of mitigate the absolute fiery trash can of a train wreck that was happening around him. The problem is, and I'm seeing something similar play out with Mac Jones right now as a young quarterback, when you start to have that pressure mount and accumulate and build you speed yourself up to the point where you're beating yourself. Sunday against the Saints, because of so much pressure, Mac Jones kept feeling off the edges and that need to click and climb the pocket to get away from it. There were multiple occasions where all Mac Jones did was climb into yet more pressure. Yeah, The interception before halftime is a clear example of that. He clicks and climbs because he's feeling – Trent Brown's injured. The right tackle is a revolving door right now. He has to climb to get away from pressure and smacked, smacks himself into more, yet more pressure and throws a pick. Fields had some of those moments too. And this is – there are so many counterbalances and counterweights and pros and cons for young quarterbacks to deal with. J Jalen Hurts on Monday night, the two interceptions. One, he did too much to try to use his eyes and move a defender. The second, he didn't look anywhere else. And through an interception, you've got to learn the balance of how much is good, how much is too much, how much is not enough. Same thing with handling pressure in a pocket. You've got to feel, okay, I know I'm getting pressured a ton, but at some point, like, I've got to help myself. I can't If I can't trust the five in front of me or the six or the seven or whatever, I've got to do a better job at sort of staying within myself, not wildly overreacting to pressure, not speeding myself up artificially to the point where – I'm ready to throw because I've cut my seven-step drop into a two-and-a-half-step drop because I'm so afraid about getting into the pocket deep. And when I'm ready to throw, people aren't even close to thinking about their breaks yet. Like These are the things that young quarterbacks, particularly in situations where they're getting a lot of pressure, need to sort of balance. And so, look, I, I'm not sort of def, you know casting any blame anywhere that it really is deserved, which is Matt Nagy, who I think, as people have talked about and written about, didn't do a good enough job for his young quarterback, but Fields perhaps has to understand that his guy's not doing a good enough job for you, but you have to sort of still stay within yourself as best as you can. I think it's great analysis, Mark, and I and I'll just emphasize it this way: um, every anyone who's had any l l 
decent amount of life experience has worked at a shit show. Yeah. You've worked at an absolute yeah. shit show yeah. where basically the leadership is incompetent. The people around you don't care anymore. Um, everyone's demoralized, you know, whatever's going on in that situation. And there's a point where you have to make the decision that I can either be part of the victim class of my environment yep. or I can be someone who is going to do the best I can to create success for myself. Even if I know that the odds are stacked against me by the surrounding teammates or infrastructure of management, that it's not, they're not, they're going to prevent these types of things. You'll, you have only two choices. You can either walk away, meaning that you don't like what you're doing and no longer want to ever do it again, you know, in that, in that, wherever you are, or you can do what you can to make yourself the best you can be knowing the situation is not going to be good for this period of time. Right. And so when I watch Justin Fields, I think, what could he do? Like, what could he do right now in this situation? That's an absolute shit show. And I think the answer is the lowest hanging fruit work on his footwork. You know, your footwork is your savior. It's your anchor. It's this foundation that you set up your game with. If you can be good with your feet, even with everything crumbling down around you, it sets the foundation for you to be able to see the field, to be able to have good progression timing, to be able to have clarity with your decision making and be able to do it from a balanced position, being able to move in a, in a timely way. And when I watched this game, and it's understandable why he didn't have great footwork, he didn't need it at Ohio State all the time. In the type of or Georgia, the type of offenses that they ran, it's low hanging fruit for most NFL quarterbacks. Um, but it's something that if he wants to make substantial improvement in his game, knowing that Matt Nagy probably will not be here next week, next month, next year, in the next three hours, whatever it is, you know, it doesn't matter what coach is there, he's going to have to get better at it anyway. So I'm going uh, to, I didn't mean to cut you off. Okay. Just, if you, okay. if you're still I, no, I was just going to say, I just think that there's a point where you just have to say, what are going to be the little victories for me? Because I need to have goals, set goals and have victories in the, in the scheme of things, because long-term I'm going to be, I'm going to have a good shot of becoming a, a strong quarterback in this, in this, um, in my career. And yes, my drop back game may not have to be Drew Brees's drop back game in the offense that they're going to put for in there for me, but will it help him? And considering that he's so good at play action and they yep. would probably like to put him on some five-step drops and definitely some three-step drops. You know, I watched him take extra drop steps in a game where, you know, Doug pointed out the play. I pointed out the play the day before, not as well as Doug, because he's doing it, you know, the next yep. day and studying the tape. But I noticed the same thing with the tight end running the jerk route, you know, and he missing it. And the reason that I saw him missing it was that he took two extra steps on his drop and he was unable to, you know, he was 
he was hesitant, and as a result of that, he wasn't in time with what he saw on the field. He wasn't able to ex- move in the pocket in this timely of a manner and, and get into the area where he could have hit that throw. Instead, he had to go the opposite direction because he added two steps to his game, and it ruined his timing. And you saw this repeatedly where his feet weren't together, where he had a boot in the, in the, in the end zone, in the red zone, and the Browns, we're like, listen, we're going to pressure you because we know we're counting on you to make a mistake. You're a rookie, yeah, and we've been pressuring you all day. Your game's completely deteriorated. Even if you were good at this somewhere else, you're not going to be good at it right now. And if you are, kudos to you for having the poise to get it back together. But they they bet, they blitzed him out, and he he rolled into that pressure, and he didn't have the the wherewithal to be able to execute and throw that ball over the defender to the receiver there that maybe you know I'd say seven out of ten NFL quarterbacks could do in that situation or at least throw it away yeah. you know so these are things that he can work on reading the triangle of coverage and knowing who to go to and 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 you know where reading understanding the leverage and not trying to force certain balls you know. But these are things that, you know, for him, you you can mitigate a lot of that because of the scheme in Matt Nagy. But at the same time, if he's going to become the quarterback he's capable of, he has to shut all that out and say, what can I control? Because yeah. what I can control is going to make me better. It's going to make me a leader. It's going to show people that they're going to say, he had every excuse in the book to whine and complain or not do anything or not work at his game to get better and wait for something else to come along. But he's a leader and he's doing that and his teammates are going to respond to that. Yeah. I mean, I think that's incredibly well said. I mean, the only thing I was about to say was in a, in a way he has to be selfish right now. He has to be selfish in that he has to take this opportunity and these chances he gets to improve himself as a quarterback. And I know when you say in the context of his team sport, a player needs to be selfish, there might be pushback on that. But he needs to improve himself because, let's be honest, Matt Nagy might not be here come Halloween. And Justin Fields will be. They are they went in on him as a first-round quarterback. They gave up draft capital to go get him. So he's going to get opportunities to continue to prove himself because of that draft capital expenditure that he's their starting quarterback. So he has to take these opportunities to improve himself like the footwork stuff you just talked about and take advantage of it. So in a sense, he has to be a little selfish and say, look, you know, like you said, block out everything else, the scheme, everything, the train racks of the, an offensive line, Matt Nagy, five man protection schemes, all that. What can I do on every single opportunity I get to make myself a better quarterback? And honestly, and this is my little mini rant is that if you're selfish in the right way, not in the yeah. amateur way, but you're thinking of what can you do to make yourself the best you can possibly be, you are helping your team. Yeah. And and if you and oftentimes we see entities take advantage of people who shame themselves for being quote unquote selfish by basically exploiting them for the idea of not even looking after themselves to be respected in what yeah. they do. And so yeah. I would, so I'm totally with you. I think it makes sense. So what about Washington's defense? They've been really underwhelming. They came into this, this season that seemed like that they were going to be one of the top units. 
And it's just, you know, I know they've got a rookie corner and Benjamin St. Juice. You know, they've got a rookie middle linebacker and Jamin Davis. Did we just underestimate the value of having veterans at this position, right? These positions at this point, or is it a lot more than that? I mean, I think there's a number of things going on. I, I think the defensive front hasn't sort of lived up to expectations. And I think part of it is, you know, a couple of years ago, and look, they still have five guys up front. I mean, four guys up front. They were first-round picks, you know, Chase Young, Deron Payne, Jonathan Allen, Montez Sweat. Um, but there has been a bit of a drain there. You know, you lose Ryan Kerrigan. He's not in town anymore. Matt Ioannidis, who out of all of their pass rushers, might be the best of the bunch, honestly, particularly because he could do it mostly on the interior. He's been dinged up a little bit. He got dinged against the Giants, um, so he hasn't played as much as I think Washington would like him to. I think the pass rush, the expectation was they were going to have the blueprint for every team, right? Get pressurous for, be able to drop seven into coverage. Like that's, you know, anytime anybody writes like a game preview, it's like, oh, you got to get pressure with four. Like how are you going to be Tom Brady? Get pressure with four. How are you going to be Josh Allen? Get pressure with four. I mean, it's it's like, you know, my big my big fat Greek wedding where he's putting Windex on everything. Like getting pressure with four is the Windex of NFL analysis. But they were, that was the expectation going in. They'd be able to do that. They haven't been able to do that. So they've had to try to generate manufacture pressure with blitzes, with other stuff. And that starts to put pressure on players in the second and third levels, a rookie linebacker, a, a rookie corner. And even though, look, they added William Jackson, who's a tremendous cover corner, man coverage corner from Cincinnati. The other guy over there is, is like you said, a, a rookie. So I, I think there's some issues with the inability to get that pressure with four that we all thought they were going to be able to do now has made them do some different things schematically. And that feeds into an area, Mark Bullock, who's got a Substack, subscribe to it, covers Washington, wrote a great piece this week about how there are some failures to communicate in the back half of that defense on concepts that, again, and I see you raise your hands, is exacerbated by having younger players in the lineup. And so that's what's going on in Washington right now. It, what makes it all worse is – Obviously, the expectations were high in this area. This is a Washington football team town. It's not a sports town. I, I will say that until the cows come home. The expectation was this defense is going to be great, that Ryan Fitzpatrick, all he has to do is not have a six-interception game each week, and they're going to win games. Well, defense hasn't been great, and now they have Taylor Haneke, and last week we saw turnovers early. And when you're spotting a team like the Buffalo Bills, a 21-point lead, you're probably not going to win. <laughs> no, no. I think that was – extremely well thought out and explained and i don't have anything to add i mean i, I think that's fantastic i did it i did it <laughs> i did the thing you did the thing so <laughs> so is anthony lynn responsible for holding back mike williams after his unbelievably hot start or is this just your typical sports media hot take it's typical sports media hot take i'm a huge fan of anthony lynn i'm a massive fan of anthony lynn and i know people like to din anthony lynn whatever um i i i think anthony lynn was part of you know turning around getting justin herbert ready i mean you, you look at how that came together last year with lynn with steachin uh with pep hamilton um we're all gaga over justin herbert he needed solid coaching around him to do that. And, and you know, I, 
this idea that you know the reason why Mike Williams is suddenly exploding, it's not like Sam Darnold and Adam Gase. Like I, I don't think it's anything like that. Now there's certain I think there is something to do with the Adam Gase theory, which is you know, and Kevin Clark of the Rainer actually traced it back to high school. Adam Gase graduates high school the next year, his team wins the state championship. Like it, it literally every time Adam Gase leaves a franchise or a team, they get better when he leaves, dating back to high school. I don't think this is it with Mike Williams. Please bring him to Cleveland then. So that's all, you know. Robert Mays tweeted Thursday night that some teams should play like the Chicago Bears right now should fire Matt Nagy, hire Adam Gase for the rest of the season, knowing that once they fire him at the end of the season, Justin Fields will be fantastic because of the Adam Gase theory. See, there you go. There you yeah. go. I, that's why these theories are just so entertaining in the same yeah. way that, you know, who's in the doghouse and what kind of crazy stuff happened here or there and police stations and all sorts of crazy stuff. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah. yeah, we don't need to go there. Um. All right, so... What's the coolest game plan play design game plan or play design or series of plays you saw this weekend that you would want to share with people? I mean, there there were a ton. I just got done sort of rewatching Dak from Monday night. The first touchdown to Schultz, I, I think was a nice little design. You know, we're, we're seeing a lot, you know, the like again. The NFL analysis of this year is too high coverage, too high coverage, team showing too high. Collinsworth was talking about it Sunday night. Gracie was talking about it. You know, the Mannings were talking about it. So how are teams attacking too high? And they had vertical route from the outside guys, sort of that wheel route. They were lucky enough to get him into what looked to be a quarter, quarter, half, attacking the half field side. They had the running back sort of release into the flat, corner stays low. Safety takes the inside release post route, wide open for a touchdown. I thought that was the design. But generally speaking, the four-by-one stuff, the four-by-one stuff is, is, has been so much fun to see. We mentioned the Rams. They do a, a ton of that stuff. They did a ton of it this week. The out route to Cooper Cup that Stafford threw on a, to a dot along the sideline, they ran that as a cover four beater. They got the two-high look. Outside guy runs the post. Inside guy, you know, Cup, he runs the out. You know, I had some people, I, I broke that down. Some people wonder why, why is the safety having to take that route, break it away from them? It, teams rules vary from team to team, but cover four becomes cover zero man coverage pretty quickly if you get vertical releases because after a depth of, say, seven, eight yards or five or six steps or whatever the rules are for a team, if you're the outside guy and that outside guy is, quote, vertical, he's yours. And if you're playing with outside leverage and he runs a post, do the math which means if he goes to the post and you're going with him, that inside guy who then becomes vertical, safety has to buy that, and he runs an out route, and you're standing on the hash marks, and he's breaking away from you already with outside leverage, that post-out combination is tough for cover four to handle. And so the four-by-one stuff, Dak on Monday night, his first throw of the game, and I loved this, that four-by-one look, he throws, he looks like he's going to throw the backside slant. Now the linebacker in the middle of the field is reading his eyes. He's got four receivers to his left and a single receiver, CD Lamb, running the slant route to his right. Dak opens to the slant, and this linebacker, knowing he has four receivers over there, runs to the single receiver side. Dak then resets his eyes and throws a sit route right where that linebacker should have been. When you can move a guy with your eyes away from four receivers, four threats to one threat, and then throw to the four threat side where he should have been, 
that's impressive to me. So the four by one stuff has been fun too. That's really cool. And and one of the things I want to ask you just as a follow up, it's a little bit of off the topic of what you brought up, but you did bring up too high. And I've always, you know, learning from like Dub Maddox and other people yeah. that splitting the safeties on the post route is a really viable way to go. But yeah. I've been kind of looking for that in the NFL this the past couple of weeks. And while I've seen it occasionally, there are a lot of times where I just see the open post and and it's like it looks like it could have been the first read. And it the usually is. doesn't take it. It usually is. The way I was taught, and again, bad quarterback. I know. I get it. But the way I was taught was, say you're taking a five-step draw. If you don't like it by your third step, you got to come off of it because that is a window that can close in the blink of an eye. And so you, like, if you want a good example of it, Green Bay versus Detroit, Robert Tunyon, the touchdown where Rodgers threw that into an absolute shoebox. That's how quick you have to be with it. You have to be quick and you have to be decisive. Lamar threw an interception on that. And Quincy Avery did a great job at breaking that down. And what we're seeing teams do because of that threat of that safety splitter, they're they're either running Tampa 2 or they're having the mic match that guy to constrict the window. And Quincy had a great term for it. He calls that guy a monument defender. His back is to you. He is not going to turn his head. He is a statue. He is a monument. But you still have to fit that over him and drop it before those two safeties can break on it. On the pick that Tyron Matthew poached him, that's just the backside safety doing a very good job. Lamar maybe put too much air under it and let him sort of come over. But that's a throw that you have to make your mind up right away. And if you don't like it when you first look at it, you got to come off it and give it up. Because if you look at it, come off of it and then try to work back to it no way. forget it that's closed that's closed you can't do that it's too late that that window's closed to you so essentially it's a so essentially in theory it's the first read but yeah. in practice it's it's like most people laughing and going yeah i'm not running through that wall you know i mean that's... yeah i mean it's, it's very similar to like concepts like y cross where you've got the go the cross and the curl sort of an air raid concept and we say you peak the go right you take a quick look at that yeah. go route if you like it right away you throw it if not you're done with it you know and then when i do a video talking about how he's working through his reads and he comes to the curl the third read and the corner backside falls and somebody's saying well why does he throw the go route he's already ruled it out you know and, and you know, that's the deal with sort of trying to figure out quarterbacks' mindsets. Some of these plays, they might be technically a first read, but it's either there or it's not. And once you've decided in your mind it's not, it's over. It's done. You don't look at it again. That must be why I was always big fans of guys like Favre, Mahomes, and the contractually obligated player that I have to talk about almost every podcast Um who's sitting somewhere at home right now or training out yeah. in an open field somewhere, Chad Kelly. So, yeah, but I mean, but those guys, they take the rule books and throw them out the window. Because yeah. for a guy like Farr, for a guy like Mahomes, you might look at that safety splitter and not like it right away, but then you buy time and you like it eventually and you have the ability to put that football yeah. into that window. Not many quarterbacks can do yeah. that. And so for a guy like, say, you know, Joe Burrow, if no it's way. not there, you got to come off of it. And even his touchdown, the one to Chase, where Chase sort of works across, like he's really slow with that. Like yeah. he he should have come off that concept to the bunch first. Uh, Derek Clawson did a great job talking about that earlier this week. Again, look, 
now that we're finally getting film, Twitter's finally fun again because because you, you get so many smart people like like Matt breaking stuff down during the games, which again I don't I don't understand how he does that because Matt does it so well. It's incredible. Oh, um, but but you know Nate Tice and Benjamin Solak and Clawson and Deontay Lee and stuff. There's yeah. so many smart people out there like breaking stuff down. Sean I learned Syed, stuff. Yeah. 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 Side schemes. Like I learned so much stuff just scrolling through Twitter these days. That's why like season Twitter is fun. Yeah. Summer Twitter, not so much fun. Season <laughs> Twitter is fun. Well, I'll, I'll go on to mine. My, my favorite thing, and I've definitely highlighted it on Twitter for those of you who don't aren't on Twitter, Minnesota's run game. Let me tell yeah. you, I saw plays on Minnesota's run game that, I have always enjoyed, and I kind of wondered, and, and I may be wrong about this, and if you're a Minnesota beat writer or, or anyone who follows me who really follows this team, from what I recall, I mean, they've always had a diverse run game. I mean, it's a, it's a Kubiak-style Shanahan type of run game, so you're going to have gap and zone. You're going to have screens embedded. You're going to split, widen the field with you know multiple receivers, and you're going to condense it with – multiple tight ends and a fullback. I get all that. But one of the things I don't remember them using that they used with Matt Alexander Madison this week is it seemed like they expanded the playbook a little bit with their backup as opposed to contracting it, which is something that's not common when you put a backup running back in the game. But Madison's so good, and it just shows his versatility. And the plays sequences that I loved, in addition to all the screens that they ran, was they had a toss play and an outside zone play, or at least it started that way, with a fullback in the backfield. Sometimes he was offset to the side where it looked like that they were going to work um, to say the right. And the fullback would take a lead step to the right as if he's heading to the edge to block. And then he would work back inside and wind back to the backside and, and block to the backside. And Alexander would follow that exact same motion. So while it wasn't a pulling block with a lineman like counter, it was a toss play where he usually just crammed it inside, um, right inside his lead block, or it was a small cutback. And he'd get they just gashed them for chain moving gains over and over again. And so it was a great play because Seattle's defense, they they play that cover three. They like to, they're trying to protect themselves on the back end with a deep safety and the cover three shell so that, you know, guys like Thielen and Osborne and Jefferson won't get behind them, but they can still play aggressive up front and really attack. And they over attack to the one side and, Madison's repeatedly getting this. And so that's the short con like throughout the entire game, which I love. Yep. And what I love is when a team can do the short con repeatedly and then it and then that's all to set up the long con because the longest run of the game came in the I think in the late third or fourth quarter and they're in their own um red zone air backed up in their own area inside their own 20. And they they line up as if they're going to run that same play over again. Um and they have the um, they have CJ Ham work outside, and he takes a step outside and bends back in. And the middle linebacker sees this, and he slides out to the edge, and then sees follows CJ Ham and immediately dives back inside. 
And Alexander Madison takes one hesitation step as if he's going to bounce back inside and continues outside and gains yeah. 26 <laughs> yards on the play. And it was just like, to me, when you see pay, play sequences like that where you just keep setting them up and going against expectation throughout the game, and then you have another way of twisting it, like a good story where you, you think you know what the twist is because you've seen enough clues, and then they completely turn it on its head. That was what that sequence was, and I loved it, and I kept thinking as a Trey Sermon fan and after seeing, <coughs> after anticipating what I wanted to see in that game, I, actually, I watched the the 49ers game first. And so then when I watched the, the Vikings game later, I was like, man, they need to implement that for Trey Sermon because Trey Sermon and Alexander Madison have some similarities to their game. And the ability for Sermon to like kind of, for them to bend back like that and use use check in that way, that would be devastating. Absolutely. And I think you just made a convincing case, Matt, for why George R. R. Martin should be an NFL offensive play caller. <laughs> that or David Fincher. So yeah, yeah, be, exactly. David, the diff, well, the difference would be is that there would probably be a lot of nudity with with George Martin that we really or don't like need to see. Mead recipes. Or mead recipes, that's true. Yeah. Whereas with David Fincher, there would probably be a lot of bloodshed. And yeah. it would be done in like grotesque psychosexual ways so either way either way it might be entertaining it might be sickening depends on your point of view you know or the mood you're in so there we go so who's an emerging player of note that you've that you've seen this month i was gonna say one but i think you're gonna go there so i'm gonna skip the dallas cowboys tight end position right now um kj osborne the receiver for minnesota yeah. And it's been fascinating to watch this offense because we expected it. You know, you just talked a lot about their run game stuff, but his sort of emergence as a viable option outside of Thielen and Jefferson, I think is going to be huge for this team. I think, again, put yourself on the defensive coordinator hat, right? You got to worry about Jefferson. You got to worry about Thielen. You got to worry about all the stuff they do in the run game. You're probably not spending a lot of time worried about Osborne, but some of the routes he ran, some of the moments where Cousins looked to him, I mean, probably the biggest play of the game, right? That conversion that they had late where they show blitz, they're going to come after, you know, they're going to come after Cousins. They've got to get off the field. And so the guy that's running free, the guy that, you know, Cousins makes this sort of like drift and throw to, under pressure decision, it's Osborne. And I, I think he's going to get some opportunities going forward because of this. We just talked about what Kubiak does on the, in the run game, but he, the touchdown to Thielen I thought was a brilliant design. Bump him out of the backfield to empty. You get the zone man coverage indicator. Cousins has exactly what he wants. And he, I think Kubiak's doing a very good job right now. But I think Osborne might be a guy really to Osborne might be a guy to watch. I love it. And you're right that I'm looking at a tight end, and it makes sense because I clued in that little John Onan quote at the beginning about Pepperidge Farm that he used. Yep. It's a great little tweet that he had. The tight end, though, that I'm thinking is actually Dawson Knox. Oh, yeah. Dawson they went wide ISO with him. Yes. Wide ISO with him made a beautiful catch that you would normally see from him in the college game. He was a freakish athlete coming out. 
could really win those, you know, those back shoulder plays, those contested catches. But he was a guy who dropped the ball 14 times during his first two seasons. And when, as Josh Allen started to come on, he seemed to go into the background. But apparently, if you, I didn't know about this until recently, but, you know, it was, I, I believe Sports Illustrated probably has a recent article about it where, you know, Knox went to tight end university, which is basically, uh, you know, kind of a, a group thing with Greg Olson, Travis Kelsey, and George Kittle. Um, and they're all kind of doing kind of what Duke Manyweather does with offensive yep. linemen. Um, and he's just, he's worked on releases. He's, you know, he's he just learned a lot of different things. And right now, he has 288 yards and 20, excuse me, 107 yards and 10 receptions. Last year, totally had 24 catches for 288 yards. We're three games in, and yep. he's already halfway to his season-long total, and he's on track for a t- double-digit touchdown season. And when you have Emmanuel Sanders, who's showed up this week and was playing well and really played well enough that they didn't need to roll with um, – force the ball to digs at all um that also opened things up for Knox as yep. a result of that and Knox is a matchup guy and if you worry about drops and things like that as I've talked about a lot Tony Gonzalez dropped the ball a ton his second year it was his worst year and he dedicated himself and figured out a game plan to improve and he credits that as the the turning point in his career to why he became a Hall of Famer. And Knox has that has that kind of high-end athletic talent to be a top tight end in this league. I think it's going to happen. Um, so, yeah, yeah and, that's, and that's it, It's a great reminder. Organizational decisions should be paid attention to because everybody under the sun said they got to draft a tight end. They got to go sign a tight end. They got to trade for Zach Ertz. They didn't do that. And some people thought it was because, oh, they're just going to run a ton of 10 personnel. And they do run a fair amount of 10 personnel. But they didn't look to replace him. And that should have clued us into the idea that they think they've got something in Dawson Knox. We just haven't seen quite yet what he can be. Without a doubt. Without a doubt. So uh, is Ben Roethlisberger done? Yeah. And it pains me. It it, yeah. it kind of pains me in a way. Um, Roethlisberger has been fun to watch, and I say this as a Patriots fan. We've talked about that. But he's a fun quarterback to watch and to study. But, yeah, I mean, some of the stuff we saw in Stephen Ruiz, God bless him, with the Raider, put together that video with the old-timey music in black and white. Um, he, he's done. And, you know, we, we saw this last year. Doug Ferrard and I, as we do the matchup podcast each week, even though when they were 9-0, and 10-0, we were like, should we start worrying about Ben? Like, he can't push the ball downfield. He can't fit it into windows. I was wondering if there was a lingering injury, if it was weather-related. And so when the season began, Doug and I were like, we're already on Ben watch to start the year. And it's not even, you know, it's not even meteorological fall yet. It's meteorological fall now, and the fall of Ben is upon us. And I think last week he had a play where they just ran simple stick and the outside stick route was open 
on a fourth down and he didn't feel comfortable throwing it. And that's a five yard out route. I don't care if it's right hash to left. That's a five yard out route that NFL quarterbacks have to be able to throw. He doesn't feel comfortable throwing that. That's what I knew. Yeah. I think he's done. Yeah. He's done. And, and I'm, you know, obviously I love to pick on the Steelers because of being um, a Browns fan. Yeah. And I respect the heck out of the Pittsburgh organization, but I love to do that. Um, I thought that a lot of the off-field stuff with Ben Roethlisberger, you could have a very good reason to personally just not like him. Yeah. Um, and I certainly feel that way from that perspective with him. Um, but I admired him as a player. Yes. Um, and what I'm saddest about when I see Ben Roethlisberger leaving our game is that he may very well be the last of a generation of quarterbacks that we may no longer see um, in the yeah. NFL because he was from that Brett Favre, Steve McNair, you know, even on the low end, David Garrard, you know, guys who were tough, who could extend the pocket and take hit after yeah. hit after hit and and win by buying time back there in a way that you just don't see it's much more finesse oriented than it is just sheer guts and physicality and you can still he's like a heavyweight fighter who had a great like you know um body game Yep. You know, who could also have, but he had a knockout punch too. Yeah. And, and when you watch him now, it's like watching a, it's like watching, I don't want to say it's as bad as watching Muhammad Ali, but it's like watching an old heavyweight who the punches don't come out as fast anymore. You, you know, the power isn't there anymore. His legs aren't really under him the way they need to be anymore. They're just not as strong. But the technique is still there. The awareness is still there. He's just like a half beat too late with everything. And the athletic ability isn't there. And a lot of people say that's sad. Like I always hear people say, it's sad to watch a guy hang on too long. I'm not that way. I'm a, I am a total believer that life is tough and you die. <laughs> and as a result of that, and we all have the death experience on on both literally and metaphorically, and there and death can be ugly, but there's a beauty in the way that you fight to try and live every ounce that you can. And so I admire athletes who stay on too long for what people say stay on too long right. i admire i don't i if you can't remember what they were like beforehand then maybe you should go especially in this day and age with youtube you yep. can go back and you can find all the beautiful things you want to see with that but i think there's a beauty in watching someone fight to stay in what they're doing right yep. you know they're playing to live and they're yep. trying to do do that and I, and and it's also a testament to their athletic competitiveness. And to me, that whole competitiveness thing is what I love. It's why, like, if Adrian Peterson or Frank Gore play again this year, I will be thrilled. And yeah. I will and I will enjoy all the fantasy analysts booing it um, for just the reasons of 
knowing what they can do. So that's, yeah. yeah. No, I, I, I love how you put that. And I, I think there is sort of that like beauty in seeing somebody, you know, even though he's more like foreman at the end of his career, like to see him continue to go out there and to, you know, try to throw the proverbial punches and things like that. You know, it's, it's, it, there is some beauty in that. Yeah. So this is my wife's question for us. I asked, her, okay. I said, okay. Ask us a question. She goes, she said, this one basically fucked up my office when I asked my, when my, I asked my office this one. She said, the greatest love story of all time, Titanic, Pretty Woman, or Kill Bill? <laughs> I think, first of all, I can see why this destroyed an office. But I think there is a case to be made that Kill Bill is the choice here. I mean, you, first you, of all, you Princess Bride, like, 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 like it, it, it starts about money. Like, I mean, I get that it gets to a love story in some way, shape, or form by the end, but like, yeah. I mean, and then look, Titanic, I'm sorry, no, like, yeah. like it, it was a visually impressive achievement by James Cameron, but again, no, like, it's, it's, I, I there's an eternal love component to it. I get that, but Kill Bill is just a different level. So it was like, the underlying revenge factor and anger factor and to go to that length for someone you loved. I, I think there's, you know, it's not like she like sat on a diamond for 80 years and then plopped it into the ocean. You right. know? Yeah. She was proactive about it. Shall we say? Yeah. And I, I think out of these three. Yeah. Kill yeah. Bill. I'm with you, you know? Yeah. And just by the way, it, you know, by the way, my wife thinks that um, princess bride is training is a, Princess Bride, since you brought it up kind of as a slip, that Princess Bride is a, actually a training tool for bad female adult behavior. Um, that's that's my wife's take with it. So not mine. Ah, it's hers. She okay. It's a okay. training book for bridezillas everywhere. Um, got it. So there we go. That, there's some sense to that, too. I, I, I would agree. There's, a, yeah. there's certainly a lot of entitlement there. You know, we know. Where I mean, I, I think Princess Bride is a nice love story. It's a great. From, it's a great story. It's, from his it. point of view. Yes. From his point of view, not so much from hers. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. I certainly. It's it's well written. It's a great yeah. movie. But I yeah, love it. I laugh that she says that. I'd love to hear. I'd love to tape her rant one day and put it <laughs> on there. Um, all right. Weirdest celebrity adult story. Celebrity story involving you. I, it's weird. I don't really have a tongue. I, I really don't. Um, I mean, you know, I'm trying to rack my brain here, like a celebrity story involving me. I mean, meeting Muhammad Ali when he was shopping for socks. Like, really? Yeah. And I, I, what did I tell this story recently? Um, it was on radio in Arkansas or something, but it was when I was practicing law downtown DC and I heard a commotion across the street and Look, like you live in DC, you start getting like I remember seeing like senators like out just shopping, like Mark Baggett, a former Democratic senator for Arkansas, was just like out shopping with his wife one day, bumped into him, um, having dinner next to Scooter Libby, like after his pardon <laughs> at an Indian restaurant. Like, you know, Robert Novak and Senator Daniel Patrick Moynihan, when we lived downtown, we would go to a church near the White House. And they were members of the parish there, and I would meet them and talk to them. Or Cokie Roberts um, was at the second church <laughs> where my wife Roberts. and I get ran. Like, you live in the D.C. area. These are the sort of celebrity encounters you get used to. And yeah. you start, like, getting familiar with it, right? So 
this office that I was working at across the street is the Mayflower Hotel, where a lot of you would see in days before a big dignitary coming, they would set up the side entrance with these huge tents so they could drive the limos in. And one day I was like looking over there and I looked across and there was a sniper staring at me just going, get down because the prime minister of Israel was about to come and you can't be looking at that. Otherwise, you know, the red dot's going to be on you in a second with the you know, sniper scope. Um, but so I'm, I'm expecting the commotion across the street to be something like that. And I looked down and I knew it was Muhammad Ali. I could see him amidst the crowd that was starting to form. And so I go, I literally bolt from my desk, run down the stairs across the street through like six lanes of Connecticut Avenue traffic. And I get there in time to see him. And he's, it's at the, you know, it's near the end of his life. Like it's, it's like 10 years ago, 20, 15 years ago or so. Yeah. And he, he's not physically, obviously where he used to be, but he was loving it. He was relishing it and he was waving it, and people were like cheering for him. And then he puts the fists up and he gives a quick one, two at that point. And I'm getting goosebumps now telling it, but that was my coolest celebrity than ever. That's very, very cool. I yeah. love that story. I've told my John Elway story. I yeah. Think, so I don't need to do that one. I've told my waiting on, I can, you wanted to waiting on tables for Dion, waiting on Dion Sanders after he got arrested. Or I can do the, um, or Metal Lark Lemon. I'm going to do Metal Lark Lemon. Yeah, let's do that one. Okay. Metal Lark Lemon stole my Coke. And I was a little kid. <laughs> And we went to see the Harlem Globetrotters, and I was so excited. And I remember going up, I, and I was young. I couldn't have been more than five or six. This is a different era, because this is like the 1970s. And the 70s are were a weird and wonderful time to grow up. So when, you're, when you get sent as like a five or six-year-old kid to the concession stand in like Richfield Coliseum or whatever it used to be way out there in Cleveland, and you're that young, I don't remember... I don't think about sending kids that age alone in a crowd no. to do that. No, nope. back in that time, it was like not a big deal. And I remember coming back and being so happy. I got myself this big, tall Coke and I'm literally like, we're up in the, you know, third level, you know, I'm in the second level, but we're pretty high up on the first level and I'm get up at the stairs and all of a sudden I see, I'm looking down as I'm getting ready to get down the stairs and Metal Lark Lemon is on the court and he calls a timeout and then he runs up the stairs at me and he grabs my Coke <laughs> and starts drinking it and says, thank what? you. Yeah. Says, thank you. And then like runs back down. And I just remember being mad because I was yeah. like, I was thirsty. But I think about it now and I laugh. But yeah, Metal Lark Lemon stole my Coke in the That's middle, incredible. I, I remember, in the middle of the game. I remember another one. Um, Again, the DC political ones are the ones we get. But my wife and I were in Potomac Video. It's this now closed, like video rental place, like a, a a small, you know, mom and pop type one. And we hear this voice we recognize, and we look over, and it's this tall, thin, slender man, maybe like six three, six four. It's Chris Matthews, wow. you know, from MSNBC, yeah, NBC. Yeah, yeah. But it's this tall, yeah. I every time I'd seen him on TV, I pictured this like small, squatty, like yeah, me too. He's like six five, tall, thin as a rail guy, talking about some French film that he and his wife, Kathleen Matthews, who was on ABC in the DC area, wanted to rent, and they were hoping that it was back yet. And my wife and I just like, that's Chris Matthews. 
But yeah, it was Chris Matthews. Wow, look at that. Yeah. I think they do the maybe they do the illusion thing so that he doesn't get confronted in in shops, but like um, yeah. Tucker Carlson, his, his yeah. alternate yeah. guy on on you know, opposite side, same deal. Um so what's the weirdest or funniest interaction you've had with an on-duty cop? <laughs> Um, you mentioned growing up in the seventies, growing up in the late eighties, early nineties, before social media and stuff. There's a bit of varsity blues to my high school days. Like <laughs> we got away with some stuff. Okay. Um, I mean, I remember, you know, after my senior year, the keg parties in the fields and, you know, the police eventually come to break them up. And I remember like, literally I was like sitting on a pile of what looked like a bench with a pile of leaves on it, but it was like the keg. And I'm talking to a police officer who's like, we, we know there's alcohol here. And I'm like, sorry, officer. Like, I haven't seen any tonight. And I'm literally sitting on a keg. I mean, there was that. And I'm sure my mom's excited to hear that story. There was another night, though. And this is probably my favorite. My first car was a 1980 Chevy Malibu Classic. It was my grandfather's. My grandfather, when, when he got back from serving in World War II, he was a brake man at a, a you know, a repair shop. That's what he did. I mean, that he worked on brakes back when they had asbestos in them and everything. Um, but he loved Buicks. Like he loved Buicks. And this was his car. It was in the sort of Buick Chevy like family. Like he worked on yeah. Buicks. But, and he eventually gave it to me. I remember the night that he gave it to me for a dollar because you had to like actually pay for it to transition it. We were pulling into my, my grandparents' house and I just jokingly told my dad as he was pulling in, dad, don't bump his car. Little did I know that in 20 minutes that car was going to be mine. But that was my first car. It was blue with a white hard top. Oh, I mean, yeah. It was just, I yeah. mean, it's just vintage, like 1980s, like Americana mobile. I mean, that's what it was. The back windows in the back seat did not roll down. And so one night, me and my friends were driving. I think I'm driving us into like Harvard Square or something for the night. And my friend Bubba, who was my left tackle in high school, he's sitting behind me in the back seat. And we've got a caravan of cars, like three or four cars of kids. transfer from my neck of the woods, Bubba? No, 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 no. Bubba was New England barred and bred, but yeah. Um, And so since we've got this convoy of cars, which and it's before cell phones, remember, we can't talk to each other. And Bubba wants to talk to the people behind us. So a light turns green. I start to go. Bubba like throws the door open to reach out and be like, Hey, we're going to be turning left at the next light or something like that. The, as, as he does this, as, as God would have it, there's like a car chase and a motorcycle cop with lights flashing that passes us on the other side. And he goes by us. And I'm like, Oh man, he had the lights on. I thought he was going to pull me over. As soon as I say that he makes the U-turn to come back. So I pull over and Bubba's like closing the door as I'm doing this. And the guy gets out, motorcycle cop, and he comes to the window. I rolled down the window. He's like, this isn't for you. This is for the idiot in the back seat. Can you roll down the window? And we're like, well, that's kind of the problem, officer, because we can't roll down the window. And the guy just started laughing, and he's like, don't do it again, you idiots. And he goes <laughs> off. Probably to like get some actual like serious crime. That's one. The other is this. And this one just popped into my head. Um, when we were living, my wife and I, in Northwest DC on Connecticut Avenue, just a couple blocks south of Chevy Chase, Maryland. It's like 
you know, Northwest DC. I mentioned this neighborhood. People know exactly what I'm talking about. There's a stretch up there at Connecticut Avenue where there's only a couple of stoplights, but there's a lot of shops on both sides of the street. And so they thought it would be a good idea at intersections where there's no lights to put these bright orange neon flags on each side. And when you're crossing the street, you pick up a flag and you kind of wave it to say, hey, you know, please stop. We're in the crosswalk. And so we read about this in the Washington Post. And then one night, my wife and I and another couple, we had been out at a Greek restaurant and bar, had dinner, had a couple of drinks, and we're getting ready to walk back to our apartment. And we crossed at one of those intersections with those flags. And we thought we would use the flag since we just read about it. And so we're walking across the street and we're probably waving them a little bit too violently. <laughs> and as we're doing that, I see off of the distance, there's like three cruisers that have put somebody pulled over. And then suddenly one of them comes, starts coming towards us and a police officer gets out and she starts like ridiculing us for like destruction of private property and all this stuff that she's going to write us up for. And we're like, we're literally obeying the law here. Like we're supposed to be waving these flags so people can see it. And I'm like, I, I will email you. I will show you the Washington Post story about this right now. And we finally like talked her out of like citing us for like private property. But when we got home, Man, did we want to send the angry letter. We did it, but we wanted to send the angry letter because it's like we were literally supposed to be doing that. But that was another one. That's funny. Yeah, yeah. man. The, the 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 side door thing cracks me up. I had one with a motorcycle cop as well. I was still at UGA and there was an intersection that's kind of like one of those T intersections where, you know, you've got one way and then it intersects with another, but the it's not a four-way, it's a three-way intersection. And there was, it was around spring break. It was early in the morning, barely anybody's on the road. I'm on campus and there's on-campus police officers. Forrest Griffin, the former like MMA star was a campus police officer oh, wow. at UGA for a while. But anyway, it doesn't involve him, but I just, a little side note with that. There were no UGA police officers during spring break. So the Athens cops were um, kind of handling that duty around campus well i'm in my little prius and i'm driving up this hill a steep hill and and at this intersection the light turns yellow and i go through the yellow light plenty of time going through it's not a big deal there was a paneled truck at the other you know at the you know the to the right of me at the intersection there who was going to turn left you know once that light turns green well, as I'm passing through, I look and I see there's a motorcycle cop like on the on the sidewalk on his bike, just at the opposite side of this truck on the intersection. And he sees me go through the yellow light and decides I'm going to ticket this guy. So just as you know, as it turns red, I'm already through there. I see it turn red, like in my rear view mirror. I was already past it. Like yeah. he comes tearing out of, of this space, not thinking about the fact that the panel truck is oh, turning no. left in the way that he's turning left. And he literally has to perform an evasive maneuver that literally he almost had to lay down his bike to avoid being turned into bug juice by, oh. by by this thing and you see him like he weaves into the wrong side of the road there's nobody there on that side of the road corrects himself he's still wobbling i pull over 
literally right in front of my office across the street from the parking lot for employees. I'm pulled over right there. He comes out and he goes, do you know why I pulled you over? And he's calm as can be. And I'm just like, oh, this is going to be fun, especially because I don't have to be nervous about dealing with the cops, just me in the car. So this is going to be fun. So I'm just kind of like, I'm just like, um, no, actually I don't. And he's like, well, you went through a red light. And I said, I said, I, you know, I have to disagree with you. I, it was yellow. It turned red after, after I passed through it, I saw in the rear view mirror, which by the way, are, are you okay? And, <laughs> and that's exactly how I stated it. Like as much concern as I could pack into right. it. And he got really quiet. And he looked up at me and he goes, can I have your license and registration? I said, yeah. I said, that's why I saw the light turn red. Cause I saw you, I, that was quite a, quite a move you made there. I was, I'm glad there was nobody else on the other side of the lane there to hit you <laughs> to, for you to avoid that panel truck. Cause man, I was worried about you. And, and he just kind of gave me this little smirk, took my license and registration, came back, walked over to me and said, Thanks so much. I'm going to give you a warning. Have a nice day. <laughs> nice. And I was like, you just made my month right there. Yeah. So, yes. That was probably nice. my weirdest, funniest interaction with an on-duty cop. Now, so, now I mean, of, yeah. Hi. I yeah, mean, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So what's the, what's the most exciting sporting event you've watched? The 2004 ALCS. Um, and look, I... I mentioned earlier that Washington is a Washington football team town. I mean, New England, Boston, it, it is a sports town in a sense, but it is first and foremost, particularly 2004, a, a Red Sox town. And I mentioned my grandfather. He comes back from World War II. He gets a job. He gets Red Sox tickets in 1946. Like That's what he did. And, and my family, we grew up Red Sox fans. We grew up going to Red Sox games. I mean, my grandfather had those until the 90s. Like, and I've mentioned it before, you name a game in Red Sox history, like prior to 2004, 2003, and somebody in my family was there, whether it was game six um, in 75, my aunt and my mom were there. I mean, the 86 World Series, like somebody from my family was at every single one of those games. In 2004, look, they went down 3-1 to the Yankees. And that was a team where, you know, every Red Sox fan thought that that was a team that could win the World Series, and it looked like they were not going to. And the three-game comeback, winning two games in New York City to do the Kurt Schilling, shut up 60,000 Yankee fans. I lived and died with every single pitch. I lived and died with every single moment of that entire series. And I was able to be on the phone with my grandfather game seven when they won. I was able to then be on the phone with them game four of the World Series when they swept the Cardinals and won their first World Series since 1918. But living and dying that week with that team was unlike any sports experience I've ever had, whether it's watching games that I cared about, like Patriots games or other stuff, playing in games, other games that were just, you turn it on and suddenly Hawaii versus San Jose State is the most exciting thing you've ever seen. Nothing in my life will top that week of baseball. Awesome. I've I've definitely seen my share of great baseball, but I'd say the, it, the first event and probably the one that still hasn't been topped for me as like, just was just sold me on I didn't even know what grit was at that time it was 
I looked it up. It was Friday, June 9th, 1978. And it was Ken Norton versus Larry Holmes, a 15-round fight for the World Heavyweight Championship. Norton had beaten Ali. He had broken Ali's jaw in the past. Holmes was the sparring partner for Ali and had like some great fights. He had a great fight against Ernie Shavers, who was known as the hardest punch, one of the hardest punchers in the history of boxing, period. Like I think Ali described his punch like a mule kick. He yeah. was someone people were afraid to fight because he could, and he had a chin. And Larry Holmes had a chin. Larry Holmes is one of the most underrated heavyweight champions of all time because he had an un- lightning quick jab like Ali. He had an unbelievable chin and he had stamina and he was a smart fighter and Norton could bring it. And they went 15 rounds. Both of them left the, both of them left the ring on a stretcher that night. Um, and Holmes won that fight. But at the end, they were trading punches in a way that was like, I remember being, I remember seeing Rocky and I remember going and being like, this is good, but it, but it didn't usually you look at it and then you watch boxing and go, whatever boxing is yeah. boring compared yeah. to watching a Rocky movie. Not if that was the first boxing match you actually saw. And then you saw Rocky. Rocky was a letdown. Yeah. Like that was like it, that sold me on just, I love boxing. And my grandmother was a big boxing fan. So she she would talk about the fights and she she talked about the fights, um, the Cleveland Indians or Guardians, whatever you want to call them yeah. now, and the Cleveland Browns. And I think I probably got my love for sports from her um, oh, wow. more than anybody. And um, she would talk about she would talk about the fights. And I remember she was all excited about that fight. So I stayed home. I remember being at home and watching that fight that evening and asking if I could stay up late to watch it. And I was literally yelling at the screen as an eight-year-old, cheering, watching that fight. So excited watching that fight. And it was, um, yeah, and still to this day, I've gone back and watched that fight. And still I'm like, yeah, hands down, that's my, that wow. was the best athletic event I've ever seen. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Well, this was an awesome show. We, you know, we, we, have, the, we have the esteemed pleasure to have Mark Schofield join us every Far week too doing this. Uh, nah, not kind enough. But you know, we will. But you know, I'm. I'll, I'll find ways to be meaner to you if you want later on, so we can. <laughs> Actually, we you can know what? Up. You don't need to be meaner to me. Okay, uh, okay, uh, we can do that. But um, no, you can find Mark Schofield the TD Wire. You can find, you know, Sco's throws available on YouTube. The fantastic work he does on Twitter. The you know, Bleeding Green with Rachel Prevet. You know, the the shows that I see. I've gotten a chance to see outtakes of that show just because I'm. I don't get to watch a lot of content, but it looks like a great show. Um, so, you know, you can find Mark and his work. Of course, the RSP is available. Goodbye, I'm still doing goodbye, projections goodbye. And, and rankings. I just came out with an update this weekend for the month of September. And then I'll have a newsletter for the RSP for you regular cats out there who get the, the, get the uh, pre-draft, post-draft guide. I'll have something out probably tonight or tomorrow before the end of the month. Um, you know, appreciate your support there. You can find me at footballguys.com and of course my YouTube channel, the RSP Film Room. You guys have a wonderful week and may your teams do exactly what you hoped they would do. And how do I turn this off? There we go.